I'm Kerry Miller, and this Friday, you'll hear my funny and surprisingly poignant interview with social critic, comedian, and activist Wahajit Ali. His new book, Go Back to Where You Come From, is witty and sharp. Ali's observations would sound familiar to journalist and memoirist Dina Nairi. When her family came to the United States from Iran, they experienced a similar push-pull of welcome and rejection. Here's my 2020 interview with Nairi about her book, The Ungrateful Refugee. Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is NPR News. Now, what we don't know about what it's like to leave. Writer Dina Nairi knows. 30 years ago, when she was just a child, Dina, her brother, and her mother fled Iran. Her father stayed behind, and yes, while she's been many places and accomplished many things, the story of that leaving seared and influenced everything that followed. It also gave Miss Nyeri a deep recognition for today's refugees. There are secrets I can show the native-born, she writes in the first pages of her new book, that new arrivals don't dare reveal. I've wished to say them for 30 years and found it terrifying until now. Dina Nyeri is a writer and a fellow at the Columbia Institute for Ideas and Imagination. Her new book is titled The Ungrateful Refugee, What Immigrants Never Tell You. And she joins us this morning from Seattle. And welcome. It's good to have you back on the show. Oh, thank you for having me back. It's great to be here. You have such an interesting exploration in the book about the story of leaving and how it develops, the escape and the changes. And I have to imagine that you shape this story depending on who you're telling it to. Is that right? Uh, Oh, it's absolutely right. I think one of the first things that you begin to learn to do, I guess, differently when you leave your home is to tell stories in, in the ways that are acceptable to other people. When you're growing up, you learn to tell stories a particular way. And it's often, you know, in, in private and intimate settings as you're sharing your memories with your family and loved ones. And we each have particular traditions of how we do that and particular ways that we find these stories moving. Um, you know, the Iranian way is not the same as the American way. But once you escape, you know, you've suddenly created this one incredibly dramatic story, um, a story that maybe up until then is the biggest thing that you've done and the most, you know, harrowing and frightening and, 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 and perhaps interesting to other people. And suddenly you have to learn how to tell it, not just the Dutch or the American or the French or the English way, wherever you're trying to go. You have to tell it in the way that the asylum officers will understand and will accept. And that is its own way of storytelling that's actually quite warped. Um, It has absolutely nothing to do with the ways that we naturally tell stories. If you're trying to be accepted as a refugee offered asylum, you have to make your story fit the particular definition of a refugee, which is someone who has a reasonable fear of future persecution based on race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. So only those five things. And of course, if your story is complicated, and there's many motivations for the things that you did, or the ways that you got in trouble, or maybe the the country itself is so unsafe that it facilitates certain injustices toward you, it doesn't matter if it doesn't fit in those five, you have to make, take mm. the complications out fitted in those five categories. And of course, all along, as you're telling these stories, they're laying traps for you looking for contradictions, because that's how the asylum officer is incentivized. Dina, I I think what you've described here really reinforces this idea that 
the person who's telling the story is also highly conscious of who's receiving the story and mm-hmm. the reaction of how that story is being received, whether you are sensing some amount of doubt or skepticism, whether you're seeing compassion, whether you're 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 seeing kind of a a blankness, right? Or mm-hmm. a this doesn't move me at all. I never thought about how it's a powerful thing to hold a story like this, but I never thought about how conscious you have to be about the person that's hearing it and how they're receiving that story. And this is just part of the storytelling experience for the refugee, yes? Yes, the asylum experience. Yes, absolutely. You know, asylum storytelling is complicated in itself. But, you know, what you will be seeing almost certainly is indifference and a blank kind of stare. Asylum officers don't show any emotional response. But also, you have absolutely no way to know if you are moving them, you know, by their subtle physical cues, because the subtle physical cues of an Iranian audience is different. You know, this is all cultural. All storytelling is cultural. Mm -hmm. And the way we receive stories, too, is cultural. So, you know, for example, it's very, very possible for me to, to be telling a very moving story to an audience of Dutch people. I, I lived in Amsterdam for a while, so I use them as an example. And and they would be all stony-faced, and and they might actually be quite moved, but, you know, the Dutch don't show that much, you know, emotion. <laughs> right. But with the Iranians, they could be effusively, you know, with you and not actually that moved because it's their culture to be effusive. So, you know, you really have, no, as you know, as someone who's escaped, you know, trauma and, and, and potential death, and, you know, maybe you've never left your country or your village before, you just don't have the cultural education to to understand if you are having an effect on this particular audience. All you can do is try to know asylum law, which most of them don't. And, and they're subjected to these credible fear tests the moment they arrive, sometimes before they've had access to any kind of legal counsel. So it's staggering just the lack of information and how um, how much you have to commit, I suppose, to a story without the aid of any kind of education on your audience or on the the laws governing their decision. You know, I noted that people within the same family who had a shared experience are not necessarily going to remember or deliver the story of that escape the same way. And that's just natural. I mean, look at look at eyewitnesses, you know, to a crime, we many of us will tell a different version of the story. But I thought it was interesting that your mother really doesn't like it when you tell the story of your escape from Iran. Is that because she has left that vulnerability behind and feels fully herself, right, in in this life that she's in now many years later, or she doesn't, she just is not comfortable with your perception of what that escape was like. Um, I think there are layers of it that are more kind of deeply embedded in in the psyche and, and ones that are more apparent. So the most apparent reason is simply that to her, this was her defining story, perhaps not the defining story of my life, according to her, because, you know, I think part of what she prides herself in is that she got us out, you know, and she um, gave us this opportunity to have this American education. And so she doesn't want that to be the defining 
defining story of my life. It was the defining story of hers. But <laughs> to her, because she is such a faithful Christian and continues to be so, and she's she's suffered so much for that, the story has to be about some glorification of, you know, of God, of Jesus, you know, of her faith. So uh, to her, you know, it was always going to be a hallowed moment, um, a sacred moment when this story was written down for the public. And she always imagined it being done so as a way, you know, as kind of a, a, a huge, you know, grateful um, ode to Jesus. And so for, for me to write it in my own way, call it my defining story and slap the title Ungrateful Refugee. <laughs> um, you know, she's, she, I don't think that that sits very well. But I think on a deeper level, too, it's it's really about point of view, isn't it? We we all disagree with our parents about the stories that we right. lived because we That's had right. the ch- child's point of view and we were so much more vulnerable and, and, and they wish for us to remember things differently. I mean, there is a very noble purpose in what your mother did. It was risky. It was frightening. It was the kind of thing that I don't think many people when faced with similar circumstances might have chosen to to take on that kind of risk. I wonder if when she she sees this exploration that you've done here and what it means to leave and how it's often received and seen it also diminishes that sense of nobility that anybody naturally would want to hang on to about having made that choice and seen it through. Do you know what I'm asking? Well, a kind of, I suppose, I suppose maybe you're talking about the fact that I guess as a literary writer, I, I make everyone very gray and, and, you know, there, there are flaws yes. and there are weaknesses yeah. and, right. and, you know, people, nobody comes out completely clean and nobody should because then you've not done justice to the actual fully realized human being. Um, but no, you're right that my mother would much, much prefer, um, for there to be, you know, good guys and bad guys and for <laughs> there to be a noble purpose and a great <laughs> right. sense of, you know, of achievement. And she also really very much likes the story of, you know, um, America as the rescuer and, you know, our then future purpose and our obligations and all of that. And I, they're very, very black and white to her. And I think only recently did she start to kind of see more gray because of the Trump administration, because up until before the Trump administration, she was very happy accepting the, you know, American Christian conservative, um, you know, viewpoint on a lot of things. And suddenly she has awakened to the notion like this is not the kind of person, ideology, leader that I almost risked my life to get to. Like, um, I, my mother was a, a rebel. You know, she was, she hates, she will never call herself a feminist, but everything that she fought for was, ex- were feminist ideals. You know, she wanted to be, um, respected and equal to men. She believes in, in, you know, open immigration and open borders and things like that. And so to see, um, what has happened to this kind of city on a hill, to America, America, the champion for the downtrodden and the vulnerable, the people who rescued us? I think it makes her very, very sad, but it also makes her more, more open to the gray. Dina, I think you're you're someone who will understand this, and I'm eager to talk to you about it because I've given a lot of thought as a journalist to how we elevate some escape and refugee stories and how we ignore others. There's a decision making that goes on among journalists and in newsrooms about what is worthy of our attention when it comes to refugees. I've talked on the show about those images of that father and his child on the banks of the Rio Grande where they drowned trying to cross the river. And it got so much attention. And then I thought, but what if they'd made it? Would would we care at all 
I'd love your perspective about how you see these, how the, the way the news media and then Americans in general treat these these stories. I think we are drawn to certain types of, of people. We're drawn to tragedy. We're drawn to exceptionalism. So we like to think not only we can pick, pick out, you know, people of great merit, but that the border officers can, <laughs> you know, people who themselves are of no great merit at all, um, you know, can, can actually see this and, 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 and that we can somehow have some kind of immigration policy based on merit. But also I think we um, are, you know, drawn to people who um, we most, I guess, identify with culturally who are close to us who seem that they could possibly become Western. And, and and then, of course, we like the stories that feel different, like they could be movies, you know, and I think right. the problem with that is that in particular countries, the same thing happens again and again and again. You know, you have, you know, Central America, you've got gang violence again and again and again. And you've got people who have been absolutely ravaged by poverty, by endless violence. And so they don't look attractive to us. You know, because of all the years of suffering that they've gone through, they've become a little bit closed. They've become a little suspicious themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so we think of them as perhaps crafty. Oh, what do they have in mind? But all they want to do is survive. And if we had only heard each of those stories one time, we would be moved. We would be shocked. The problem is that it has happened so many times, right? That we are now desensitized to particular kinds of stories. And this happens in Europe too. And I, I just want to ask, like, how is it that this happening many times over makes us think we have less responsibility well, yeah. than if it had happened once. I know you've had a lot of conversations. I mean, that that was part of the um, the queries and the questions that you came into writing this book with. You were going to talk with a number of refugees. What I wondered about what we're talking about now is, do the refugees themselves understand that when you are the 30th person who shows up at the border to ask for asylum. And your story sounds horrific, but very similar to the other 29 that came before you. I mean, do they understand what that means? I think I don't know what you do about it, but but I wonder if there's a a recognition of what this is. And this is why we so need to watch out for them, because they are mired in the present. Many of the countries that they come from, they don't have, you know, we, we see a couple of them with phones and, and access to the internet and things like that. And yes, they have that, but they don't have the kind of research savvy that we have. You know, mm-hmm. these are, are people who have been, you know, who've grown up in violence and poverty, have been in bad situations, come from different cultures, have, you know, there's language barriers, there's literacy issues. So, so you know, you have people like that. And all they know is their own experience, the harrowing and awful things that happen to them. And and they can relate those to you, but they don't have, you know, this broader view of how many others have told the same story. Um, and, and, you know, and often also they, they in the interviews, they give in to despair, you know, they cry, they make themselves, um, you know, seem hysterical to someone who has actually heard the story so many right. times. And there's right. so little compassion from the other side. They don't see it as somebody truly, truly like... Um, breaking, you know, under the, the suffering, they see it as oh, another person putting on a show. Um, I was looking into a story about the UK Home Office, and mm-hmm. and I discovered that you know a couple of years ago there uh, was a lawyer from a, a charity called Freedom from Torture that I work with, and she um, had asked for the papers of one of the uh, her her clients who had been rejected, and they sent that you know they're obliged to send the paperwork, but they can redact the annotations by the officers, and they had forgotten to do that. Mm-hmm. So you could see what the officer had written down on the notes. And it said, applicant has started crying. Why don't you just go back home, loser? 
This was the asylum officer. Wow. This person had become so desensitized to these stories. And on the other side of the table, the man was just saying, you know, I just want to see my wife. I just want to go home and, and breaking down in, in, in what is a very, very truthful and authentic show of emotion. You're listening to a conversation with writer Dina Nyeri. We're talking about her new book, The Ungrateful Refugee, What Immigrants Never Tell You. You write something that was intriguing to me and I think more complicated than I recognized. You write, even if the former refugee had no trouble with his own story, his memory flawless, his papers in place, there's the sense of entitlement and heroism that follows escape, the desire to keep his story pure, to enforce that purity in others. Now we're in the perspective of the refugee and the ownership of that story. What, what does that mean, what I just read? In that section, I was talking about what happens afterwards okay. after you arrive, you know, and, and whether or not then there are allies on the other side for the incoming refugees. One thing that happens when you um, have been accepted, I think psychologically, it's so tempting to believe yourself, you know, exceptional, maybe perhaps even, you know, um, rescued by God. And, you know, slowly your memory fills in the holes and, and, um, Two things happen. First, you want very much to change into, you know, the native born and you give up a lot of your past identity and you give yourself over to transforming. And then another thing that happens is that you uh, forget the imperfections of your own story and you <laughs> believe it to have been pure. And so I think then you're much, much tougher of people who are following. I see. Um, okay. You know, so I take the example of my mother who is extremely, extremely, you know, kind of tuned in on any possible lying on the on the part of incoming <laughs> refugees. So you're she saying she is a story. real skeptic. She, well, yeah. yeah, well, she wants to know, you know, are you one of the ones like me who told the truth and she will ask you know people who are christian converts and are coming in for details you know and she at times has sounded like an asylum officer asking you know what was the name of your church did you know this particular group do you know so and so uh, who else do you know and so on and and I, when i saw her doing this i very at first i was so angry but then i recognized it as this need to understand your own story as flawless and true mm-hmm. and, and and to understand that the rescue as inevitable because can you imagine the nightmare of thinking about how big that chance was, I suppose, that you might have been rejected. Um, The memories of these um, asylum seekers are often incredibly, incredibly flawed because of trauma and shame. There's the part of the brain that's responsible for sensory information. During trauma, that goes into overdrive. And that's why we remember the smell of blood and all of those like gory details and, um, you know, all of the sensory things. But the part that's responsible for contextual information just basically seeds um, and stops working. And so people who have gone through these awful situations don't remember what day of the week it was, how long it lasted, how long they walked, you know, like things that the asylum officer thinks that they should right. remember. The, the very so specific even, details that the asylum officer th- or whoever is listening to the story will think adds want. verification to it, right? Exactly, exactly. And the thing is that the, they, they don't educate themselves on what kind of stuff will be forgotten psychologically. And so they just continue to ask for contextual info. So when you've made it through, if you have, you know, by chance been believed, do you really want to believe that, you know, you got by just by a hair, that, you know, all your memories were flawed? I I do believe that the memory fills in. And then you think that your story was airtight, and therefore that the people following you should also have airtight stories. You've alluded to the fact that your mother was a Christian in Iran, and she was being persecuted 
for her faith. And a, and a moment came when I think your dad realized that your mother might end up being imprisoned for her faith. Is that right? She was. She was. Um, she was arrested three times. Did you find that when you eventually got to America, and I, I know that was by way of the Arab Emirates in Italy, but mm-hmm. did you find when you got to the United States that Americans were much more receptive to your story because it had faith at the center mm-hmm. of it? They were very receptive to a version of the story. So, you know, we were sponsored by, you know, a church and a couple in the church, and we were brought to Oklahoma after 16 months. And, you know, very immediately we were taken to the church and very, we were asked for our story. And my mother performed this story at churches just again and again mm-hmm. for the next few years. And it was not the way one would learn to write a good, you know, short story, for example, <laughs> uh-huh. the way I learned to write it, you know, in, in, in Iowa. It was, it was, it's much more like give us this very kind of hagiographic journey, this this story of triumph, you know, this how you were rescued by America and the harrowing escape and all of that. But none of the details about our life before, none of the things that complicate the story, you know, that make it a little bit sad that we're here because that life was so beautiful. And, and it can a, never as be if regained. your life just began the moment you got to the United States. Yes. And, it, and, yeah. and there was absolutely no questioning the assumption that life here in the United States had to be better than any life mm-hmm. in Iran. And of course, for us, that wasn't true. I mean, my my memories of Iran are are so beautiful and full of family, full of love and celebrations. And, you know, my parents were doctors, so we had respect. And that was important. I loved going to the village on the weekends where my grandmother had this huge kitchen and cooked for like 20 people a night. And everything was really, truly lovely. There was an orchard and mountains. In Oklahoma, we lived in this tiny, you know, quite derelict apartment complex. And everything was dark. And people around us were hostile. And it was not better. But the assumption that, of course, it had to be, um, had to kind of be protected. And so we left out many of the parts of our story from Iran. And we made Iran the villain. And we made America the hero, because that's what we were asked to do. Uh, I wonder if you'll read a page from that part of your book and, and tell us a little bit more about what has happened. You've landed, the family has picked mm-hmm. you up. You're coming into their home, right? Yes. Okay. So um, this is just after we have spent 16 months as um, first as undocumented immigrants and then as refugees, um, you know, or as asylum seekers. We were accepted as refugees by UNHCR, but we were waiting for a country to accept us in a refugee camp outside of Rome. And then um, at, at some point, we were granted uh, asylum in the United States and taken to Oklahoma. So I'll start reading there. Yeah. All right. We landed in Will Rogers World Airport on a stifling July day in 1989. Jim, the American writer Mama had met in Mama Muti's church in London years before, came for us at the airport. We loaded into the car, jet-lagged and confused, unable to take in the details of our new life. The Oklahoma landscape seemed like miles and miles of nothing, like we had landed on Mars. It was the barest, flattest land I had seen. Jim took us to his house. We met his wife, Mary Jean. They gave us their loft, a wood panel space decorated in russets and browns, and left us to rest in a big bed. The day we arrived in the United States, Baba sent Mama a letter demanding the return of his children. It was as if he hadn't believed we were gone until some asylum office took us in. Maybe he hadn't warned us yet. We rose early the next morning and lined up to see a parade. It was the 4th of July, but it seemed that all those families on beach chairs waving American flags and eating watermelon were celebrating our arrival. 
The parade weaved down residential streets, house after house of actual white picket fences. Some had porch swings, American flags. We were in a film. Jim and Jean were right-wing evangelical Christians. I marvel now that they agreed to sponsor a family of strangers from a place they knew from a hostage crisis and a war. They spoke to Mama about her plans, making clear that she wouldn't take advantage of any of the resources available to refugees. We're hard-working Republicans, Jim chuckled. He wasn't joking. He would instruct her how to hunt for a job, a car, a driver's license, an apartment. In the meantime, we would live in their attic. Dina Nyeri reading from her new book, The Ungrateful Refugee, What Immigrants Never Tell You. You know, it sounds like Jim and Mary Jean, as noted in the excerpt, were kind and they were compassionate people. But it also sounds like you knew pretty early on that you were expected to perform or demonstrate gratitude. And I've got to believe that that is exhausting after a while. Um, I haven't put this in the book, but, you know, I'm suddenly reminded of it now. And my mother kept constantly having to tell me to calm down about this. But Jim used to make fun of the food I liked. And, you know, he was this older man. And he he was like in his 60s, I think. Uh And, you know, he was so jovial and charming. And he liked to joke around with me. He was, you know, not... He was affectionate. He was an affectionate man. So I loved him right away. I thought he was wonderful. And we would play and he'd let me play on his computer. But then, you know, I had my favorite snacks were Iranian. So my favorite thing to eat was, you know, you fry up a bunch of spinach in olive oil and you add salt and pepper and you put it in yogurt, in cold yogurt, and you mix that up. And that's a, I mean, it sounds so gross. (laughs) (laughs) And that was your favorite snack, huh? (laughs) As a kid. See, this is why I'm healthy at 40 years old. (laughs) But I loved that dish. And I used to, my mother used to whip it up for me all the time. And I craved it one day when she made it. He just made such a fuss about how gross it was. And was, you know, telling me, why don't you like normal snacks? And by normal snacks, he <laughs> meant like Skittles and M&Ms and things like that, which I actually thought were pretty gross. Yeah, and um, they are. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is that for him, this was joking. And for me, even at that young age, it was just this constant, you know, telling me that my things are not good enough and are no longer allowed here. And it made me really angry because I felt like I was entitled to eat what I wanted to eat, to be who I wanted to be. And I didn't want to relearn life. Like I I was 10 years old already. Did I really have to start at, you know, what's good for eating, (laughs) you know, And, and, and already there was the language question. So it was infuriating. And I didn't really put the term, you know, gratitude in front of it until much, much later. But it didn't feel good. We had a recent conversation where we talked with a writer who writes about this idea of how your parents' experience of leaving influences how they tell you to be in the new place. And we we noted that so often that advice is keep your head down, be grateful, don't rock the boat. And the children of those parents are outspoken and rebels and telling the kinds of stories that you're telling. You're absolutely right about the children of parents like that, because we all have want, you know, to take a stand for something. And my mother got her story, you know, she got her rebellion. She, you know, in her 30s, looked at the world around her and decided, no, you know, I will not stand for being told who I will be, and I will choose for myself. And she did that. So I, you know, 
I feel perfectly entitled to do that for myself, you know, and I think, um, I think it's really very difficult where some of the things that you rebel against are the things that they have taken, you know, so dearly to heart. But, you know, another, another thing about it is that for immigrant parents of their generation or people who went through such worry and so much objection and so much, um, you know, loss of dignity and identity to finally get here. And they've slowly rebuilt that up and watched their children have every opportunity and become successful. Right. I think they're afraid of American criticism of, you know, the, the native borns thinking that we are ungrateful. And so let's say you do make statements or say things or, you know, rebel in the ways that perhaps I have done. If um, it's accepted by Americans and if you're successful and if you have kind of these markers of success, then it's it's more palatable to them. You know, whereas if you are not accepted, if you're kind of this lone wolf going out and causing trouble, then then, you know, the question becomes, what are you doing with all the opportunity that I sacrificed my life to give to you? And, you know, it's it's it is a legitimate question in some ways. It is. They did sacrifice yeah. a lot. Um, but, you know, I think there's that fear that. You know, you'll squander it all. And, and, and the measure of whether or not you've squandered it is respectability and acceptance among the Americans. And I think it's partly an Eastern Western thing, but it's partly also the fact that the biggest thing that they lost during the migration was their identity mm-hmm. and respectability. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that issue of dignity that, that I talk about so much, but during the time that you are, you spend waiting, the dignity leaks away, the respectability leaks away slowly as your clothes become worn, as your, you know, hair becomes scra- scraggly, you know, your, your degrees wear out and you suddenly are no longer, you know, this, you know, respectable, polished doctor, you know, Nayeri or whoever, you are um, now, you know, refugee woman with two children. And um, it's taken so much to, to gain that back. And you start to think of that as really, the, truly the most important thing in life. And you want your children not to throw that away on, you know, what feels like nothing. It sounds like you have given some thought to the what if, but it also mm-hmm. sounds like your exploration of your Iranian heritage really upsets some of the members of the family who did indeed leave. Do I do I have that right? No, I reveal a lot about about our family. And I think it just goes against Iranian culture. And my family tends to be, you know, private, and, and, and they just don't like things as public as I have made them. But I think, again, we come back to the point of view question, you know, um, my way of seeing the world is very, very different. Um, and my, you know, lens is different from from each of theirs. And I think it's really hard for anyone to look past their own lens and to accept somebody else's, you know, narrative as I guess, having even a place in this world. You know, I, I think as time passes, it's become more and more acceptable to them. And I think I think one thing that happened is that I started off with fiction. And, you know, the first time my mother saw even a glimpse of herself in fiction, <laughs> in my fiction, she went bananas. <laughs> in a um, good way? Oh, in a bad way. In a bad way. In no, a no, no. Bad way. And it's funny, it was so veiled, too. It was just something she recognized as herself, and she saw it as an indictment. But I was just giving a character a flaw, you know? And and over the years, we had so many arguments about this. You know, she would say, she would bring up a short story that I wrote, and she would say, Dina, you lied about me. And I said, well, that's not you. That's a character. <laughs> and she would say, yes, but you still lied. <laughs> um, you know, which, which was really kind of funny. But having had those conversations specifically with my mother over the years, maybe prepared 
admired her for this, although I don't think she loved it. Um, but it, our conversations have grown a little bit more more nuanced um, over the years. My father is very different. His standards are all completely Iranian. So he'll get angry, for example, if I describe Ardestun as a village when he says it's a town, <laughs> you know, look it up. Right. You, you know, I asked you in a in a good way, because I've recently reread Amy Tan's The Joy Luck Club came out 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And she talks a lot about the same experience you've had, where, of course, you are blending your biography and what you know into fiction, which is okay. So it doesn't mean you're telling the story of your life, but you're taking what you know. And her mother, who was very difficult, loved to see herself, flaws and all, in some of <laughs> these characters wonderful. that Amy Tan created. I guess you never know how that recognition is going to play, right? Yeah, I think Amy Tan is very, very lucky <laughs> if she has too. a mother like that. But then again, I don't know if I'm being a hypocrite. I don't know how I would feel if I showed up at length in somebody's fiction. <laughs> I will soon find out because my partner is also a writer. But, ah. um, but you know, I, I would like to think that I would give that some space because I think art is important. I think fiction is important. And I think that the way we create characters is a lot more complicated than what we want to say about one person. It's about we're trying to get at something that goes beyond a person. We're trying to get at something that happens in the world, a truth mm. in the world, something right. that often goes unseen. And it's not just about a person. It's about relationships and the kind of complexities between people. How old is your daughter? Three and a half. Okay. You've probably given some thought to how you're going to tell your true story, your one true story <laughs> to her. What do you think about with that? What do you... What what do you want her to really identify with in that story, in your story? First of all, I would like very much not to be pegged as just one thing. And, you know, I've learned, I suppose, from my mother's pain that there is we do have a lot in common. And I want so many other things from my daughter that my mom wants from me. And I think that makes me more compassionate to her. But I would like her to acknowledge and love her Iranian side, just as she should acknowledge and love, you know, her French and American sides. And I, I, I would like her to embrace, you know, new cultures, uncomfortable situations. And, and I would like her to also see herself as coming from a tradition of, um, you know, people who are very literary, who are in love with the arts, who are, you know, tenacious and rebellious and really hardworking. And I would like her not to squander that. Um, at the same time, one thing that I've been seeing lately that I really disagree with how, you know, children are raised that I really find very important, especially after writing this book, is that I would like her to understand that she is not entitled to the things with which she is born. And I don't want her or her generation to be, you know, the kind of people who will look around them and believe that they somehow earned all of that and that they have the right to try to keep people out who only want the same, you know, opportunity. I think that the reason that the conversation has regressed from 30 years ago when I arrived is precisely this. 30 years ago, the Americans around me, you know, the immigration officers, all of them saw their humanitarian duty and they saw America as having particular ideals worth protecting and even if they didn't personally want us there they wanted to preserve this ideal of America as the champion you know uh, of, of the vulnerable America as having a duty to the displaced now we've regressed we haven't moved on to more complex questions of how to use our resources how to welcome our neighbors how to make everyone's talents shine we have not done that we've gone back to should we even let them in and we've just reduced the number of refugees and immigrants we take to such embarrassing levels and that's because people believe they're entitled to what they're born with um you know i just 
quickly will will say something about how one thing I plan to tell her very early on in some childish way is this thought exercise by the philosopher John Rawls um, called the original position. Have you heard of it? No. It's this idea that, you know, Rawls kind of invites us to put ourselves in the original position, which is, you know, um, what if we had to create a a society before we knew which body we would be born into. Mm. You know, we would look at the statistics of it. We would say, hmm, well, it's most likely I will be born into a, a working class body, someone who is, you know, maybe poor, someone who in this country or that country, who, whichever is most populous. And then you would make things best for them. You would not be worrying about, you know, tax cuts for billionaires. You would not be closing gates. You would not, you know, leave people in war-torn areas to fend for themselves because you would be afraid you would be born into those countries. So it, it, this this kind of way of thinking is he calls the veil of ignorance. Well, I would like my daughter to do that thought exercise very early on, you know, um, in, in school and to ask herself whether or not she has been lucky from the perspective of the original position and what that means she owes to the world and what is her duty. Dina Nairi's book is called The Ungrateful Refugee, What Immigrants Never Tell You. Dina, thank you. Thanks so much for the conversation. Thank you for the wonderful questions and for having me. 